0: Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Upgrade your mindset. Transform your body. Uncover your purpose. Welcome to Torchbearer with Ollie Herman-Taylor. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Torchbearer podcast. It's an absolute pleasure this week to be joined by someone I've kind of known, not very well, but known of for a, quite a few years now. I think we first met actually Gosh, I was trying to think. It's about sort of seven, eight years ago in Chichester, in a in a personal training situation, and um, that's when I first met Hayden. But anyway, welcome to the Torchbearer Podcast, Hayden Walden. Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. No, it's a real pleasure to be able to speak to you. A quick sort of official intro. Hayden is uh, a drummer. He's the director of certifications at at DDP Yoga. And he's also founder of the Do Something movement, which we'll kind of dig into a bit later. But um, Hayden, it's great to see you. And I follow you on social media from time to time. And I see lots of pictures of you, you know, kind of active, smiling. You're always doing something. You're always in the gym. You're doing yoga. You're doing... Crazy amounts of burpees. Um, yep. <laughs> so, but basically, you know, obviously, that's a huge part of your life at the moment. Is is kind of like training. Is activity you know, is sort of fitness and and making the most of yourself. But it it kind of wasn't always like this from what I understand. You know, I think, um, could you just tell us a little bit about your story sort of starting from childhood? Because I know that you were kind of written off in a sense in terms of movement and balance and physical abilities. So tell us how you got from there, that point where you were written off to all of these Instagram posts where you're crushing it, lifting heavy (laughs) weights.
1: So the first thing I'll say is I was diagnosed with dyspraxia when I was I think I was five or six, my parents, my mum in particular, noticed there's something wasn't quite right in like my growth. She was a, a nurse that worked with babies and, you know, she'd seen kids grow up and something quite, wasn't quite happening the way it should happen. You know, I would struggle holding a pen. I would struggle with the order of the day, like structuring things, like most children, you teach them that they get up, they, clean their teeth, or they have their breakfast, they clean their teeth, they get dressed, all of that. I just couldn't comprehend this. And then I was uber clumsy. And when I say uber clumsy, I mean, I would fall over my own big toe, like just anything. If it was there, I'm going to fall over it. If it's not there, I'm still going to fall over it. So we went through a bunch of testing, a lot of, I was, at the time I was in Derbyshire, I was born in Chesterfield. So we were going to the child development center in chestfield and i was seeing like a child psychologist and i can't remember the therapist it was a pediatric therapist and things like that they were helping me with all these skills and finally they came out with this diagnosis that i had what was known as clumsy child syndrome which let's be blunt about it this is 1985 86 they they didn't mince words it was clumsy child syndrome there was nothing fancy about it so From that moment on, I'm known as being clumsy. And then it gets turned into dyspraxia, which then they find out there are other things to it. So dyspraxia, dyslexia can be interlinked. Some people with dyspraxia have better reading skills than normal people. I'm one of those. My reading was always above my age. But others have got the same kind of traits as dyslexics. And they cross over. There are very big paths within there that can meet. And, you know, you can find a dyslexic that will be clumsy. But isn't necessarily dyspraxic and vice versa. So, one of my big things was the fact that obviously I was really clumsy and I was really uncoordinated when it came to catching and writing and all of these normal things that children should be able to do. By sort of eight and nine, I was still struggling with. And, you know, you said about being written off. Like, I remember school sports days being hell because we were made to do them at primary school. There was no get out clause. There was no. Like you couldn't take a doctor's note in and say he's not up for doing it. You just had to do it. And people at home can laugh about the idea of a primary school sports day being fun, but for me it was the worst day of the year because I couldn't run. I couldn't catch. There was no way I was gonna win the egg and spoon race, let alone complete it. I couldn't do the sack race. And there was a my mother had a an article published in I can't remember the name of the magazine. It was one of those big uh eighties like Women's magazines, and she managed to get an article about me published. And in that article, the one thing that stood out to me was she said that she used to stand at the finish line of every sports day in tears because I wouldn't be last. I would be miles back. Like last was the kid that came, you know, a couple of minutes behind everybody else, and I was still near the start line. I was still miles away from everybody. And other parents and other children would just point and laugh. They just, you know, found it hilarious that i couldn't make it that far or couldn't run or i would fall over my own feet i was uh, trying to run all these things that uh, now i can sit and look back on but it it escalated to a lifelong bullying issue that came through school because i was the butt of everybody's jokes and it kind of it could have scarred me for life because of the way that it was dealt with, not by my parents, but just by the professionals involved at school, as well as the the uh, fellow pupils and their parents, it could have left a lifelong issue. However, my dad was a drummer, and my mum was very positive. So there were two things that came out of this. The first one is my mum was always correcting me and trying to help me, trying to teach me how to do things like... If I was walking, I had a weird gait when I walked. I would walk with my ass backwards and my chin forwards and my mouth open. And it was counterbalancing because I felt like that was the only way I could stand up straight. And I wasn't anywhere near straight. And she would say things like, stick your bum in, lift your head. You know, we're walking down the street. Stop, pull your teeth together, put your mouth together, lift your head, stick your bum in, walk with your feet, one foot, then the other foot, one foot, then the other. And she would just coach me through that. Um, And she would say really nice things like, if you want to be able to do this, you've got to practice it. You've got to work at it. And I would hold a pen. I've got a very unique way of holding a pen, even now. I hold it. I'm sitting here holding it on the screen because instead of most people, they'll do this thing where they have like the two fingers and a thumb. I hold it in almost all four fingers like that, like a little class. Just so you can
0: stabilize it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'm still, I'm 41 years old and I still do that. So, and I'm left handed, which also doesn't help. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've blurred my own handwriting at school as I've gone across the page writing and come away with that's a challenge in it itself, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> you,
0: they used to tell you to turn your page like at an angle so you didn't do that, but that wouldn't work for me either. I remember friends of mine left-handed friends and they you know they they eventually developed a style where they had to have their arm kind of right over the you know away from the paper and have their wrist bent round at an angle but um yeah obviously your mum you know she was a very you know she she sort of took all of this in her stride by the sounds of things and you know just like kind of kept working with you and helping you develop a bit of a kind of practice work ethic around 100%
1: and she fought for all the right things like um, I was gifted, nowadays kids are gifted, if they struggle with writing they're gifted the chance to work on laptops and PCs in school, I was gifted an old school typewriter, which at cool. the time, yeah it's great, but again we're back in the 80s so instead of me being sat at a table with everybody else, I was sat at the back of the class facing away from everyone on this typewriter that was going click, 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 click tick, tick. and again, another reason to be The butt of everybody's jokes, another reason for everyone to kind of go, look at him. He's different. He's weird. So there was the positive element from my mum that really struck through, made sure I knew that I can put my mind to something, work at it, and I can probably achieve it. And then my dad's influence came in, and he openly struggled with the fact that I was dyspraxic. He had this whole idea of he was a musician. He didn't really want kids. He was quite happy in his life with him and my mum. She wanted kids, so he gave in, so to speak. And along I came, but I wasn't just an easy child. I was in a lot of ways, but there were these other issues. And he hated watching me get bullied. He he would try and stand up for me. He would try and do all the right dad things that sometimes weren't the right dad things to do. And then it all changed massively around the age of eight he had got a drum kit set up home he'd always had this drum kit set up home and one day I can't remember how it came about I think I just went in to kind of go can I have a go and you know there was obviously the shared look between him and my mum about whether I'd be able to do anything or not and there was the anticipation of what's this going to do and at the age of eight I could kind of grasp the idea of well my right arm's going to do this thing, my left arm's going to do this, and my right foot's going to stamp on that pedal and make a different sound. And if I do them on this different beat at this point, you get something that sounds right. So it felt semi-natural.
0: Which is interesting. You know, I, I think I've played the drums twice in my life, you know, on, on kind of friends' drum kits. And I I consider myself you know, a good mover and, you know, well-coordinated and things like that. But it's bloody hard. Like it's a really, it requires a a very different level of concentration and kind of physical coordination. So the fact that you've gone from what you've described, you know, in kind of um, the walking posture and trouble gripping a pencil, et cetera, to almost kind of, almost this, it sounds like it kind of clicked a little bit. You know, I'm not saying you were an amazing drummer from the very, very get go, but it sounds like it kind of, it clicked and sort of obviously, even though it's complex, for many people it's actually something that probably your brain computed in a way does that make sense
1: yeah massively it kind of felt right to have these sticks in my hand it felt right to use my right hand as a leading hand as well i'm left-handed my dad's left-handed but he plays drums right-handed so it gave me dexterity which i'd never had you know i i couldn't catch i couldn't play football but suddenly i can understand that my right hand left hand my right foot and my left foot are going to do four different things and I can do that and I can also count mentally either out loud or just internally to make sure I'm in the right place and know what I'm doing from left to right and it did feel like an hallelujah moment but then the childhood thing stepped in and there were Nintendo games consoles and roll doll books and you know those sort of things kind of took over so maybe about three months after trying, I kind of gave up. I did the kid thing of like, I've tried that now I'm done. I'm moving on. And I've done, (laughs) yeah, I've, I've done my bit. Thank you. I'm moving on to something new. And again, it was fine. You know, I got through the rest of primary school just as a, a bit more confident because I felt like, okay, if I put my mind to something, I can do it. It didn't help with sport. It didn't help with physical activity. It helped with everything else, with maths, with English, with even down to the fact I discovered I liked being on stage. So um, in my year six play, I played one of the lead roles. And at that point, I went from being like the shy, quiet kid to being quite popular in primary school. And then we left primary school. Now we go on to secondary school and
0: it's a whole different world, right? Was it like starting again? Because I wanted to just pause you there for a minute and just ask you about, you know, when, when you felt like you were the kid at the back of the class typing, you know, and when you were the one who wasn't a little bit behind in sports day, you were literally still on the kind of finish line. How did you feel? I mean, did, did you feel like you didn't fit in anywhere into any particular, you know, part of the, the sort of school society?
1: Yeah, I mean, to give you a really good example, football, this has left a lasting scar on me um my family my my Sheffield side of my family are all either Sheffield United Sheffield Wednesday fans right I'm not a football fan I've been brought up around it to watch it not with my dad but with that side of the family I'm not a football fan and this is why when we did football in PE in primary school and everyone selected who they wanted on their teams I was the last to be chosen and I was stuck in goal and I wasn't stuck in goal for the reason of well you're going to stay in goal and that's fine. We'll not let anything get close to you. They used to take target practice at my face. They used to try and hit me with the ball because I couldn't catch it. Now, not all the time. The teachers would step in. I had some very good teachers that understood what was going on and they would step in and say, you know, we can't do that. But even at lunch times, you know, Hey, let's go play football. And I'd be, nah, I don't really want to. So in the eighties, what were the options? You either went and play football or you went and play with the girls. And I, would get picked on for playing with the girls or get beaten up with a football in goal if I went and played football with the boys. So I had no options and I felt very out of place. I felt that I didn't belong in that society. I had some really good friends, some people I'm still in touch with now that I class as friends. But at that point, yeah, it was was hard work. They weren't friends at that point. (laughs) No, they were friends the minute we walked out the school gate and the morning walking into school and anything else we did. But from the minute the school bell rang
0: to the ringing again. Playground survival. Yeah. 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 And even in the classroom. Yeah. So you felt very, very kind of isolated. And, you know, did you feel really pissed off about the sports side of things and the coordination, the dyspraxia sides of things? Did you feel different? Not just isolated. Did you feel different? Did you feel pissed off? Did you feel angry? What did you experience? The
1: anger is a big one because I was very frustrated in the fact that I couldn't do these things. And I was the butt of everybody's joke at that point. And I felt like there there were other little things that came with it. Like at that era, I don't remember us wearing a school uniform to primary school. I think we wore our own clothes and you know, all my friends are doing laces and they're doing jeans with zips and I'm wearing tracksuit bottoms and Velcro because I couldn't do my own zip and I couldn't do my laces, you know? So there was, a lot of things that separated us. And I had one or two really good friends. Like I say, I'm still in touch with some of them now. And I had one or two that I thought were friends, but actually as I've got older and realized, they were just there because it, I was easy picking. And it took the heat off them. For whatever reason, they could have been in my position, but every time it was going their way, they, they deflected straight to me. So I was a scapegoat for everything. Hey, you want to pick on me because I've got this issue? Hey, let's pick on Hayden over there because he can't catch a ball. Let's throw something at him and see what he does, you know? And I hate to use the phrase, but I I looked like um, a demented seal when I tried to catch. Like at that age, it was two arms going in front of my face because I just didn't know. I had no perception.
0: I think it's important because, you know, this is why I wanted to start with that sort of, you know, the Instagram version of you that we see at the moment, because, you know, you're always doing loads and loads of cool stuff. But I think it's important that people understand. Not everyone's heard of dyspraxia. I hadn't actually heard of it until you told me when we first met. Yeah. I think a lot of people could get the sense of like, okay, you're not good at sport, but it's actually a lot more than that's a lot deeper than that. It is really physically challenging in terms of like, as you described, like completely not being able to catch things and just yeah. not having that level of, um, coordination and movement patterns and things. So basically you hit the drums for three months, you did the usual kid thing. And then you were like, yeah, yeah, I've done drumming. That's cool. It's time to move on. Then you got to secondary school, drumming kind of unlocked something, perhaps an extroverted side. Sounds like you shifted, your confidence shifted around this time. So, yeah. what was your sort of sec- secondary school kind of journey like? Was it a different. Yeah, I was followed, not on purpose, but followed by a couple of the kids that were
1: the antagonists to the same secondary school. So, there were about three or four secondary school options in our catchment area. And the one that I went to, so did some of the ones that had been a big issue in my primary school years. But also, so did one of my close friends. And. In year seven, it it was kind of like, you know, you're finding your feet. You're not really sure where you are. Everything's brand new. Everything's larger than life. There are kids there twice the size of you. And year sevens get bullied by year nines because they're getting bullied by the year elevens and it's passed down. So I got that. I understood the mentality that you're going to be scared of that kid over there because he's bigger than you and he's probably taking his shit out on you because that kid who's bigger than him is taking his shit out on him. And I understood the pecking order. What I didn't like was that things from my past and from primary school had followed me and were becoming a conversation. Like people would say, oh, they used, I'm going to be really on PC when I say this, but I was known as Spacker, right? That was one of my nicknames that I hate. And someone would say things like, hey, if if you throw a pen at Spacker, you won't catch it, watch. And this is in front of a class of like 30 kids that I met five of them before so suddenly everyone now knows that you throw something at me I can't catch it. they know that if you play football or any kind of ball sports it's more likely going to hit me in the face or in the balls than it is in my hand you know so that kind of followed through and year seven was really A challenging year in that respect, but then in year eight, things changed slightly. Number one, I grew. I became one of the tallest kids in class. I'd always been relatively tall, but I hit like 5'8", 5'9", and everyone else around me was still in that sort of 5'5 bracket. So it was quite nice to be bigger than everybody else. Suddenly changes the equation. Massively. Yeah. You don't even realize it at the time, but once you can see over people's heads at school, you've got an advantage. And now, less people are going to kind of tackle you, and the ones that do tackle you, if they're shorter than you, they're the ones to watch out for. Like in real life, they're the ones to watch out for. They're the they're the alphas, quite literally. Because if they're only like five foot three, five foot four, and they're going to take on a guy who's five foot eight, and not worry, yeah, you know, you want to watch out for them. That happened to me um, in year eight. We our, our school amalgamated with another school in my year eight. So I'd made all of these new people friends and new bullies. And then we all amalgamated again in year eight. So it was like starting again. But by this point I was taller than everybody else. And um, another running theme through this is the fact that I discovered wrestling. Now I'm not trying to put off half of your listeners by saying this. I'm 41 years old. I'm a lifelong wrestling fan. And you will understand why when we get to DDP yoga. But I discovered wrestling and that, Changed my personality on how I could look after myself. Because suddenly, you know, I wanted to be, at that point, it was Hulk Hogan, it was The Undertaker, it was people like that. And I wanted to be someone like that. So I would, my hair was a little bit longer. I wasn't really growing it, but it was a bit longer. I'd try and cover it in my eyes. I'd walk around like The Undertaker. And if anyone decided they were going to come onto me in any way and try and face up to me, it was my hand would go around their throat. I'd pin them against a the wall. People kind of stopped picking on me as much. I still wasn't active <laughs> in
0: that way, you know, but it definitely helped. There seems to be, you know, there was a shifting point, obviously, wasn't there? Because, you know, you developed this kind of, I guess, tenacity, you know, and I'm sure that that's, that's happened at various different points with different influences. But the wrestling, yeah, and obviously we'll, we'll unpack that a lot later. But, you know, like proper classic, like, like I guess, 90s at this stage, like the 90s proper wrestling you know yeah exactly Hulk yeah. hogan you know i i wasn't hugely into wrestling but i did i love the under, undertaker just because he was he looked super cool uh, yeah so so obviously i guess that you know you you understood that with your size and also with your appearance you could perhaps start to uh intimidate people a little bit and and i guess that changed the changed the balance
1: it did it shifted it ever so slightly not massively but just enough that it made me not want to necessarily put up with people's shit anymore particularly those that had followed me from primary school. I remember pinning one kid against a wall and I got in trouble because I choked him out and I didn't mean to. I was, I was 12 years old and I had no idea what I was doing, but he passed out in my hands and I had a asthma attack. And that got me in trouble. But at that point, that stopped anything happening for another few months. You know, it gave me a bit of clearance for a little while. Like people would look at me differently. Instead of calling me that name, you'd be like, don't go near him. He's weird. Like, well, that's good. I'd rather have that than have everything else. Took the pressure off for
0: a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And so with the wrestling, like with the wrestling, were you just a fan who was like, yeah, this is cool. I love this. Or did you actually start wrestling? Like, did you, uh, did you? No, I
1: I tried like to do things with friends, like pick people up and throw them around and vice versa. But we very quickly realized that there's a little bit of training involved. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, irrelevant of the fact that so my my mum's cousin was a professional wrestler in england uh, a deaf wrestler by the name of alan kilby and we used to watch him on world of sport on saturdays so it had kind of been in the blood to become a fan and watch this stuff but the american wrestling was obviously very different to british wrestling but you still knew that there was some element of scripting involved there was some element of tomfoolery would be the right word that I would think of as a kid, right? Because how many times can you wind someone's arm up before it doesn't snap, you know? <laughs> yeah. And if you're punching someone in the face, why is he not getting a black eye? So I would always ask myself these questions. So I kind of knew there was some kind of training involved, but yeah, I, I tried it once or twice and you realize that when you,
0: when you slam your friend onto concrete, it's not, best. It's not quite idea. the same. is it? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you actually hit someone and break a chair over their back, you you get a different yeah. result in real life, but it's the show. It, it's a big kind of, um, experience <laughs> and it's fascinating. Those guys actually, cause you know, a lot of them were kind of muscle bound, you know, like, I mean, you know, yeah, clearly using lots of steroids and things like that, but they're very talented, physically talented, gifted people who could, you know, do incredible acrobatics and, you know, make it quite believable, even though, there was that what you call tomfoolery so yeah Yeah, i can can see how it'd be an influence and a kind of you know kind of something really enticing
1: and it it did pay sort of dividends down the line for me as a fan because i didn't realize at the time but the physique the hulk hogan ultimate warrior physique i was looking at and going i want to look like that when i get older but there wasn't you know, you're 12 years old, you're kind of like, I can't really do much. I remember my granddad bought me some weights at one point and said, you know, if you want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, then you need to list these things, bought me some dumbbells. But there wasn't that mentality at that point to go, I'm going to train. I'm going to figure out how to lift or I'm going to run. Or It was just at some point in my life, I want to look like that. I want that physique.
0: You kind of mentally stored that physique and he's like, yeah, and at some point that's on my, that's on my goal yeah. list. And when I'm, when I'm big enough to kind of work out how to do it, then then I'm going to go for that. Okay, yeah, cool. That definitely happened.
1: And then, uh, again, there was the shift, as you do. Every year sort of through school, there's a, a slight shift, whether it be educationally or hobby, activity-wise, or just you as a person. So in year nine, the shift came because my dad started teaching drums at my school, and I avoided it. Like I wasn't interested at all. As far as I was concerned, it was great. He was doing that on a Monday lunchtime, but at that point, I just wanted to walk around and pretend I was the undertaker. That was good enough for me.
0: Is that because you were avoiding your dad? Like you did just didn't want to be around your dad in school? No, and ha- I was quite happy
1: to be around him. There were a few people in the group that I didn't necessarily want to mix with. Uh, one of them had been a, a sort of primary school associate who had been a reason for a lot of the mental anguish i'd gone through so i was kind of avoiding it for a few reasons and then that said person i'm gonna not name any names of people like this at that point but that said person on the school bus we always sat next to each other because uh, my theory was the better the devil you know right so sit with the same group at least that way if there's going to be any grief you kind of know what to expect it's going to be the same old shit you've had for the last five ten he sat next to me and he pulled out his sticks and he said so Terry taught me this today he taught me a paradiddle and he started to do this sticking pattern right and he was going right right left left right right left left and I grabbed his sticks I've never been so physically assertive but I grabbed his sticks off and went that's not a paradiddle you idiot and I got on the back of the seat in front of me and I went right left right right left right left left that's a paradiddle and then I did it double speed and I did it for about two minutes And then stop, hand it back, and he went, oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry, I got it wrong. Put his sticks away. He didn't talk for the rest of the journey home. And when we got back, I sat down and was telling Dad and Mum all about this. And I said, yeah, he, he got it wrong, so I corrected him. My dad went, what did you show him? So I got a pair of sticks, and I did right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. And Dad said, right, do that faster. I did it again. And he went, now do me a double stroke, which is right, right, left, left, right. I did that. He went, okay, now do me a single stroke. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. He said, next Monday you're coming to class. I said, oh, really? He went, yeah, you're coming to class. You've got it. You're coming. And that was it. Everything changed. The whole landscape changed.
0: You know, these these things you just mentioned, uh, the paradiddle. Is it paradiddle? Yeah, okay, cool. And the left, yeah. Is that from that three months of drumming you did years back? You know, is it from that initial little kind of foray? I'd remembered it. My dad would always, obviously, talk about it. He.
1: He would kind of influence things in without really meaning to. So if we were listening to, he's a big old school soul fan. So if we were listening to like Aretha Franklin or anything, he'd be like, yeah, listen to what Bernard Purdy's doing on that bit there and listen to this drum part here or, you know, it's such a great, listen to how that bass drum fits in with the bass line. And I wasn't playing drums at this That's point. That's cool. I wasn't interested, but it was, it was coming in. It, I was like a sponge without realizing it.
0: I was going to say, it's kind of like osmosis. So, your dad, you know, he mm-hmm. was kind of gradually like exposing you to all of this stuff and, and just kind of. <laughs> yes. I do this with my wife, and like, my, my wife's not, she's not particularly interested in music. And I don't know much about drumming, but, I, and I don't even know his name, but the guy from Led Zeppelin, the drummer from Led Zeppelin, John Bonham, this guy. Yep. Com- there's a couple of tracks where he does this really it's really like almost like offbeat drumming right? a lot of a mm-hmm. lot of tracks and I'm, I'm not a music expert so I, but I absolutely love it and so I'm always playing these a couple of tracks in particular like I love Ramble On and I can't remember the name of the other track whereas and I'm always saying listen 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 did you get it and she's like and now she's starting to point it out and she's kind of uh by osmosis she's started to absorb these things so I guess your dad was kind of doing that with you and you know, maybe do you think he had a bit of a kind of plan? Do you think he was was he you know, like you tried drumming for three months, you'd done other kids' stuff. Do you think he was kind of he'd backed off and tried to not put pressure on you, but was hoping to keep exposing you a little bit so you might come round or or do you think it was just his his passion?
1: I think it was just his passion. I think um at that point he was he was working as a independent press photographer and a drummer. So my dad as far as I remember, my dad has always had like two jobs and drumming was one of them. And you know, he's done some pretty big stuff in his career. He's played with some incredible people. And I'm not just talking about sort of UK B list celebrity kind of stuff. He's worked with like Sam and Dave and people like that back in the day when they came over and did some of the um US Air Force bases, the band he was in was their backing band. So he's had like incredible jobs. And, you know, it was just whether it was his plan subconsciously, I don't really know. But I do know that what he did on that day going forwards just changed everything for me. I went from going, I'm dyspraxic. I like wrestling. I just have to deal with the cards I've been dealt to no, actually fuck this. If I want to go out and do something, I just need to practice it. I just need to figure it out. And, you know, by sort of year 10, I'd, I'd gone from being the weirdo to being one of the popular kids in school because I was the only drummer that was getting called to play in the bands and getting called to do all the concerts and, You know, my hair at this point was coming down past my shoulders. I discovered Guns N' Roses and Metallica and my whole, yeah, exactly. My whole landscape of music had changed as well. So now I'm not only listening to the soul stuff that my dad's telling me to listen to and, you know, just for record, while I'm on this saying live now, the first ever song I played to along to on drums was Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave. So you know, I was like 13 years old and playing along to that really nice little track. And then the second song was Estranged by Guns N' Roses. So you have like all these I little love Guns memories and pop up. Yeah, it's amazing. And I honestly had no idea that this music world was out there. Like uh, I'd just kind of seen glimmers of it going and watching my dad play. I hadn't embraced it. So by sort of mid-year 10, I'm going to our local music centre which is a Saturday morning, Friday night, Saturday morning music school. I'm learning to play orchestral percussion, which is like vibraphone, xylophone, marimba, timps, as well as the toys, the triangle and tambourine and all those things. I'm playing at the back of like a 30-piece, 40-piece wind orchestra and a string orchestra on Saturday mornings. I'm turning up there and my dad used to laugh because he would drop me off on a Saturday morning. I'd have a ponytail in the back of my head that went halfway down my back. And I'd be wearing a Metallica t-shirt and I'd be going to play like Brahms or Mendelssohn (laughs) or something, you know, something completely out there. Mm. It was completely contrary to what I looked like. And then in the week at school, I was in several different bands playing Nirvana, playing Guns N' Roses, writing our own terrible songs that meant nothing, would never go anywhere. But it didn't matter because my lunchtimes were no longer full of bullying. They were no longer full of being called Spacker. They were full of kids coming up to me and saying, you're the guy playing drums. Can you go and play me in bloom? Oh, by the way, do you have a Marlboro that I can steal? Because I was smoking
0: cigarettes. I did everything that was like the cool thing to do obviously it was really nice going from the experience you'd had before to being like the cool kid you know like drumming's cool it, like everyone thinks drumming's cool and not many mm-hmm. people can do it or have tried and you know Nirvana's cool Guns N' Roses is cool like at, at this age of our lives you know these are the, just like the bands that you know everyone dreams of being able to be in but very few people actually play an instrument and then you know the Marlboros and did you cultivate the because you, you look cool now I mean obviously some people have watched this live they'll watch the video feed and they'll see you know you've got that kind of Viking kind of Mohawk yeah. style strip I know you've got some- <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) You've got some cool tattoos, you know. You kind of, you certainly stand out in terms of the way you look, and you've got a big beard as well. Did you start falling in love with this kind of image and cultivating this image at that age?
1: Yeah, I. So the hair started to grow because I saw a picture of Guns N' Roses, and then I don't know how many people out there listening to this will remember, but Guns N' Roses did a Paris concert in nineteen two on the Use Your Illusion tour, and it was broadcast live on Sky, and then in ninety four. I didn't have Sky, so I never saw it. But on 94, they did an edited version on Channel 4, and I recorded that, and I would watch it religiously. And then at that point, Axel had the beard. He had the long hair with the red bandana around his head. Plus, you know, he got the ink, and then you've got Matt Sorum playing. I modelled myself on Matt Sorum with the drum kit in how I wanted it set up and how I played, like, it was either a cross between Dave Grohl or Matt Sorum because I wanted to hit hard. I I had a lot of pent-up frustration from everything that had happened. So if I'm playing with a band doing those kind of things, I'm going to try and destroy the drum kit. I'm going to try and hit as hard as I can. But at the same time, you've got that other image going through where I'm hairs tied back and you know, once a term on a Saturday night in a school hall, I'm wearing a bow tie or a tie and a white shirt and I'm playing a nice glockenspiel part and reading from music. So I had every option available to me. And it was really nice to sort of reach year 11 and sit there and go with a a school careers guidance counsellor, as the Americans would say careers guidance counsellor. I can't remember what we called them at that point. But it was like, she sat there and said, so what do you want to do when you leave school? I said, I want to be a drummer. She said, well, that's not a real job. So what do you want to do? I "I said, do you want to tell me that again because my dad was a drummer for a very long time as just a solo career and then he still did that along with other things so well it's not really a career is it yeah why can't I do that so we had this chat and she kind of talked me into looking towards art as an okay. wow. option and I said came out of there and said to my dad like and my parents that that's what happened and I can't remember exactly how the conversation turned, but we found a local college, because nowhere in our area, in sixth form colleges did music at that point, unless you went to another sixth form school. And I said, I don't want to go to school again. I'm done. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to express myself. So the image
0: thing comes back, right? I wanted to- Yeah, you wanted that freedom of college, you know, and like doing, basically, you know, turning up and expressing yourself how you want. If I wanted to walk around in the
1: live Ship Binge and Purge t-shirt that I had from Metallica or the Cradle of Filth t-shirt that I can't name or any of those sort of things and I wanted to say halfway through a lecture, excuse me, I'm just going to go out for a fag, I'm going to do that at college. At school, you still have to wear a shirt and tie and you still have to do certain things. So I felt like I needed a college atmosphere over school. So we found a college that was 25 miles away and the only way to get there was to drive 10 of those miles first 8 to 10 miles first to drop me to the first bus stop and then i would get the bus and go to college and i did a level music at this college for a year and i'm not going to i'm not going to shit on anyone massively but my tutor was not great um to the point where he would fall asleep in the middle of your lectures <sighs>
0: Uh, <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> so not true. very, not very inspirational. Then, not not the kind of person you're going to model yourself on and say, "Yeah, wow, some, this person's doing it living their dream." Oh man,
1: he like one time I remember this so clearly. There were eight of us in the A level music class, and he fell asleep. At, I think it might have been a ten o'clock class, and we sat in silence for like forty five minutes, not sure what to do. And finally, one of my friends, I think he might have been a trumpet player, was like, "Shall we just go and have a fag and just go home?" Was like yeah, yeah. Come on. So we all started to sneak out, like putting the chairs back under the table and packing your bag quietly. And no sooner had we done that and got to the door, he woke up and went. So as I was saying, and continued his conversation as if he'd just taken
0: a breath with a forty-five minute kind of lapse. And so that's impressive.
1: Yeah, we think he had narcolepsy, like massively, really bad. So I didn't continue that course, but they ran uh, a BTEC in popular music and at that point that was kind of where my head was like I want to go and learn how to do recording techniques and how to play in a studio and try all these different styles out so we I jumped courses the next year and I ended up being at college for a total of three and a half years because I jumped courses but actually it was probably one of the best things I could have done because I made more friends and now no one's looking at me if I can catch. No one's looking at me if I can run or can't run or how I walk. They're looking at me and going, hey, you can play. So can you come and play drums for me? If I've got long hair, I cut my hair mid-97, mid, mid just before my driving test, actually. I cut my hair. And I went to David Beckham curtains, which was like the worst look. That look was not great. <laughs> yeah, I, I went from being like Anthony Kiedis with long, straight hair, almost like waist level, to like David Beckham. And that lasted for three weeks before I shaved it all off. So, again, it's that image thing. I've always wanted to kind of portray some kind of image that fits the mentality behind what I'm doing. So as a drummer, you can't necessarily look like David Beckham playing drums. You can't Yeah, you necessarily- don't get taken seriously.
0: I guess there's that, that, that credibility no. angle, isn't there? Uh, yeah. And also, like, I mean, because I guess with drumming and with, the, you know, the popular music, you kind of, you found your first tribe. Uh, I guess if that makes sense. You know, you found... Yep. I really belong here. I really feel this is what I absolutely love. I want to look like these guys I, I look up to. I want to sound them, like them. I want to smash the drums hard like them. So you found, that you, you found a place you really fitted into, and that's, that's obviously a formative experience.
1: Yeah, and it carried on then through the remainder. So I'm going to skip forwards a little because I obviously needed to get jobs. I needed to work, which became a bit of an issue between me and my parents because I was quite lazy. I ended up doing various jobs around college. One of them was working at Thornton's Chocolate Factory, which was, I would go to college in the day and then work in the evening. So I found out that I have a innate skill of grafting. I'm not afraid of hard work. I'm just lazy. or well, I'm not now, but I was just lazy to like, well, if the option's there to stay in bed and bum money from my parents, I'll do that versus go out and earn it. That paid for my first tattoo. That paid for various things to do with my car and made me have money to go out and do more stuff, which was cool.
0: What was your first tattoo? My star sign, my Leo. Okay. And it's cool, looking cool. very and old age, and
1: faded right now.
0: And that was age like what? 18. 18. Okay. Okay. And that was, obviously, that's the start of another journey, you know, like an ink journey, which I'm sure you'll come on to in a bit. But um, that's what I understand. Once you start, uh, I think it's hard for people to stop. And I'm going to ask you about that definitely a bit later, because I've been going round and round for quite a while now about getting my first piece, but um, I haven't committed yet. But anyway, so you're you're, you're, you're kind of, do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure I will. It's just about Finding the right thing, but um, yep. so so you're there. You're working in the kind of Thornton's job factory, uh, chocolate factory, reluctantly. Uh, yep. Yeah. And then what's the next step? Like, how do you? Where do you go from here?
1: I jumped from there. We were. I was supposed to go to the Royal Northern College of Music and study percussion. So I had two dreams, and I believe in dreams. I believe that if you have a dream, follow it. And at that point, I had two, and one was to be the Guns and Roses, to be you know the drummer for a big rich rock band. The other one was, it sounds completely contrasting, to be the principal percussionist for the London Symphony Orchestra. Wow, that is quite different. Talk about diversity. And I kind of adjusted my brain to say, look, you can, you can go and chase the rock star dream at any point in the next 20 years, right? Whereas to go and do a degree in percussion, now is the time. At this point, I was working at a very well-known fast food chain with a Golden M. And I was working there constantly trying to earn more money to sort of subsidize my smoking habit and subsidize the fact that I wanted more sticks and things like that. So there were things I needed. And tattoos? Not so much. Not at this point. I'd only had the one oh, okay. and I was quite happy for about another three, four years. Um, okay. But I I had a bit of a uh, an issue with a girlfriend that I'd got at the time. And on a night out, we got into a little Barney where nothing physically, altercation wise happened, it was just we were both young and drunk and having to go at each other and I put my hand through a glass bottle. And I don't know if you can see there's a scar running straight down the middle of my left hand. And basically it's one of those situations where I my audition was supposed to be like two weeks away. And now I've got stitches in my hand and I can't go. So my audition got deferred. I went back to the audition. They deferred it by about eight weeks and I went to the audition very out of practice, very not in the right headspace. I flunked it openly, was not in the right space to do it. The guy doing the audition turned around to me and said, I see you've got a beat taking popular music. So does that mean you're a kit drummer? And I was like, well, no, I'm a percussionist, but why didn't you do a level music? And it was very stuck up, very snobbish. And I, I came away and I thought, right, well, I'll try again next year. And then it all changed for the better because I got a phone call from, my dad, who was at work, and he said a friend of his, a drummer friend of his, had phoned him and said, This band are looking for a drummer. And they were, a at the time, I suppose, one of the biggest bands on the Northern Club Circuit. So he said, It'll be a good starting place for aid. Get him in, give this guy a call. The band were called The Gutter Band. They were a 1970s glam rock tribute act. Firstly, you can guarantee, to gather, that the name came from The Glitter Band but there's obviously something a little bit warped, entertainment-wise, thrown in to be the gutter band. At this point, Gary Glitter has just gone down for paedophilia, so they're going through a whole overhaul. that it's no longer Gary Gutter, he's changed the character to be Alvin Tardis, and they've changed, they've taken out all the Glitter songs from the set, and I go and watch them play, I'm blown away by this stage show, like, it's like watching Guns N' Roses take place in a little club, and you've got makeup, wigs, catsuits, lycra, two drummers, the back end of a Robin Reliant, uh, a spinning man machine <laughs> that the guitarist would spin on, all these so weird things, of pyros. Oh man, it was mind-blowing. Um, so we enter the new millennium and I go for my audition within, I think it was like January the 3rd or 4th. And I'm really young, like I'm 20, and everyone else in this band, the next one up from me is 28. So I'm a baby. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, If I get the gig, it'll be fine. We'll see what happens. I'm not really sure what to expect. And I get offered the gig straight away. And it goes from there. Like within the next month, I rehearse with them and we go off on the road. And when I say we go off on the road, three to four nights a week, we were on the road. So now I'm no longer working at McDonald's. My job, as my school guidance counselor said it would never be, was I was a professional drummer.
0: Yeah. So that's a big milestone. A big milestone.
1: Like I said, you have a dream. You want to go and do this for a living. You've got to put the work in to go and get there and get your name out there. I can't tell you the amount of auditions I did for other bands prior to this that didn't pay off, but it didn't stop me thinking I'm still going to try and do this. So we're talking early 2000s, and I'm earning a good sort of couple of hundred pounds a week through doing three, four nights a week. And I don't have any outgoings. I don't have any rent to pay because I'm living with my parents. I, don't, I only have to look after myself. It was like the ideal lifestyle. I'm suddenly living the rock and roll lifestyle. I'm going on stage dressed as Alice Cooper. So I have a long black wig, the face paint around the eyes and the mouth, uh, no beard, obviously, a catsuit. Uh, my first catsuit was a full body one with little red shoulder pads on, a skull cod piece that obviously sat in the right place, and six inch heels. So my five foot 11 ass was six foot five. I used to what have start. to enter the stage. <laughs> it was amazing. I have to enter the stage out of a coffin. So <laughs> they had this whole intro tape where uh, Carmina and Burana would play from Carloff um, from the Omen that would play. And um, Neil, the singer had done an over uh, speaking part over the top that was explaining who Alvin had called forwards to be his band of men sort of thing. And, and I would come out of the coffin third and I would knock the guitarist out. And then I would get the other drummer, Jason, by his neck, throw him on the floor, do some disgusting things to him. And then we'd go on, to, go to our relevant kits. We were sat at the front of the stage as well, right out front, sometimes in the audience. We'd go out, plug our little headsets in so we could hear the tracks, hear the click tracks, and that would finish. We'd be spinning sticks, clicking, and we'd be off for the next
0: hour and a half, straight through. Come off stage, make up off it sounds like a dream come true. I mean, like a proper epic show, you know, like, uh, it, it's not just, you know, like kind of getting up on stage and being very prominent. It's like coming out of a coffin, like bodysuit, lycra bodysuit, you know, like the, the full work. So it must've been really exciting. There were dance routines.
1: There were all sorts to learn.
0: And, you
1: know, my, my green as grass sort of mentality was that sort of green that I didn't even know half the stuff that could happen on the road. I'm not talking about groupy stuff. I'm not into that. Like that was never, for me, the band were good with that. We never really went that route. It was more the, the fun. It taught me the difference between bullying and ribbing. And this is like a big lesson to learn here. Cause I'd been bullied for so damn long that suddenly when someone pins you down in the back of a van, going down the M1 and they strip you down to your underwear and hang your clothes out of the window. That's not bullying. They're not doing it to make you cry. They're doing it because it's funny. You know, there's a massive difference when you're coming back from a gig at two in the morning and you're desperate for a pee. And the only thing to pee in is an empty milk bottle and you pee in the milk bottle. And then, you know, you've had a few to drink. So you're doing this over someone's head with it at the same It's like, so what? It's fun. I learned more about life in my two and a half years with that band than I did anywhere else, anywhere. I will credit those boys with everything because the age gap as well, they they treated me like a younger brother at times, sometimes like a real pain in the arse. I got yelled at a lot. I got things thrown at me a lot because I wasn't always pulling my weight. I learned how to tidy up, to f- solder. Like the crazy things, like I'm a boy, I should be able to solder, but I had to learn how to solder my own leads and stuff and fix things. Last minute, you turn up to a gig and your bass drum pedals broke. Right. Okay. We need to jimmy this together with this, 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 and this, some gaffer tape here and that. Right. We're good to go. We'll get through the night, take it to the shop tomorrow, get it fixed before the next gig. And I'd be home for maybe 3 a.m. until noon. So I'd crawl into bed. I'd sleep until 10. My dear mother would have hung my wet, soaking wet wig and costume on the line. I'd grab it in, pack my bag off same again and it was incredible that life was probably the best like of anything i've ever done there was no stress i was no financial stress no worries about anybody else the girlfriend that i had it lasted another year into that and then that ended so i lived a bit of a single life for a little bit on the road which was nice and then suddenly you start to get itchy feet and you start to want to see where else you can go i've done a few gigs with one or two other people as well So I got word that the European version of the Rocky Horror Show were looking for a drummer, and that came up. So I auditioned for that, and after two and a half years with the gutters, I jumped ship and went to Holland. Not Holland, sorry, to Austria. We went over to Austria and started the Rocky Horror Show, and I did that for the first tour was six weeks. So that, again, escalated the, the lifestyle quite dramatically because now I'm away from home. Now you're in a position where you are you might play the same city for two nights, but then you're off on a coach to the next city. And there was a lot of one-nighters, so you would rock up to a city, you would play, you would go to the bar, you'd enjoy quite a few sherbets, maybe smoke a bit of green, go to your hotel room to get some sleep, then bus call is at 7 a.m. So you're looking at your clock at 4 going, I'm stoned and I'm drunk and I've got to get up. Oh, God, do I even go to sleep? I'll sleep. Okay. I missed my first bus Sleep on on the bus. Yeah, I missed my first bus Did (laughs) you (laughs) really?
0: That's a great start. That's a great start. So obviously, like you're taking what you'd experienced with the gutters for two and a half years, and you're just taking it to a kind of a bigger level in some ways. So you're going sort of European, city to city on a coach rather than a van. Did it change the dynamic? Did it change the way it felt from like family and, you know, kind of learning a ton and thinking on your feet, ingenuity, innovation, problem solving, all that that valuable, amazing real world experience that not everyone gets nowadays by being chucked in at the deep end and going, shit, I've got to fix something because it's broken and we're live in 10 minutes. Did it change the dynamic to making it feel a bit more like work because it was on a bigger scale, maybe a bit more professional? I'd
1: say it changed it in a, um, from the family perspective because suddenly you're working with a cast of 30 and a band of six and you know you've got a whole road crew. So they would travel through the night Set up, you'd get there. All I'd have to do is set the drums up. I didn't have to mic them up. I didn't have to do anything. Just set them up. They'd be mic'd up. And then we'd do a quick sound check. Then that would be it until showtime. It also, that tour in particular taught me a lot about trust because the people I thought I could trust, I learned that I couldn't. And I realized that I was leaning on a very good friend of mine, Derek, the bass player. I was leaning on him a lot. He was 10 years older than me. And he was kind of, he took me under his wing and he was like, kid, it's going to be all right. But there were a few interpersonal relationship issues between me and other members of the band and crew. And some of that will be, as I'm 41 now, I can sit here and say, some of that will probably be my own ego. Some of it was their ego. And I can honestly, ownership wise, I'll take ownership for what was mine, but I know there was other ego issues going on. Um, So when we went back to Munich, in the October and did a full month in Munich at the same theater. I was then supposed to come home for Christmas, then go back out in January for nine months. And I got told an hour before uh, the, the Sunday evening show, which would be our final full week, start of the final of week. I got told an hour before that I was being let go, which that, oh, from the home, bit, th-
0: that was it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. That was me done. They were looking for another drummer. And I, I tried to get out of them what I'd done wrong. And there was never really an answer. It was just a clash of personalities between me and certain people in the band. And ultimately what that did is it, it put me in a downward spiral of I didn't want to play anymore. I came back from Rocky and said, I'm not playing. I don't want to do it. I just, I need to find something else. And I kind of floundered for about six months where in that six months I played Santa. i have got in with a company and was uh, a Santa for Christmas so a big a shopping center, Santa in, if only, just a, no, Santa I, Santa. <laughs> just a Santa Santa, I was sat in a grotto, um, at like 20 years old, 23 with a big white beard on and like having to put my voice down here and be, hello, little boy, how are you today? It was very creepy, but actually <laughs> it, it paid the wages and it worked. And then I did various little little bits, but at that time, as I was sort of floundering between, I don't know if I want to pick up the sticks again or not, uh, My old boss from the Gutter Band, was he's now an agent, and he rang me and he said, I need a drummer and you'll be ideal for what I want. Can you just do like a couple of dates? And he got me back into it. Between him and my dad, it got me back into playing. Then I met a guy who put me in touch with another agent in London who was the same guy who'd booked the tape that band, and various things started to happen, and he started to book me on auditions. And again, it was the usual thing, go to London, try an audition. If you don't get it, don't worry. And then he rang me out of nowhere and he said, "Uh, what are you doing in uh, two weeks? like, don't know why. You got any gigs? No. Okay, right. You're doing this morning, Graham Norton and Top of the Pops. I went, who with? He was like, Lisa Marie Presley. Wow. As a session,
0: like like a session drummer, kind of like a... yeah.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I said, as in Elvis's daughter? And he went, yeah, they've seen your bio, they've seen your photo, they want you. I went, that's amazing. Okay. So he sent me the tracks and I learned these two tracks. And I went down and met the band and the first show was this morning, which is obviously it's live TV. And it was a miming gig, but it was in my mindset of being a drummer. You don't mind. You still have to hit. So therefore you need to know what you're playing to. It's no point in trying to play like some kind of fill when it's not even on the recording. So I'd learned everything note for note and we went down and, did this first take rehearsal. They were like, yeah, that's really cool. There was a nice moment where they needed a close up of me to start the whole song. So we nailed that, did the live performance, finished that. And she was awesome. She was really, really pleasant, really polite. The guys in the band were her friends and some of her American band anyway, that had come over with her. So they were really great. And we went from there to the next day, Graham Norton got canceled, but we did, um, uh, top of the pops which was a bizarre experience because they did about eight recordings of each song and the crowd have to respond the same
0: each time. So it's all, so canned, it's, uh, it's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A bit hard. Like take number five is like, yay. It's not quite the same it, enthusiasm. No, exactly. Um,
1: but at the same time, there were some really cool moments because on that one, I ended up sharing a room with Queens of the Stone Age, which was bizarre. They just had, um, songs for the deaf come out and, I was hoping it would be Grohl on tour but he wasn't on that tour it was a different drummer but I didn't get to talk to them but my dressing room was with them and they were asleep in there so I kind of went in and went oh my god wow. if camera phones had been around at that point I would have got as many
0: photos I was before. just going to say there would have been selfie, selfie city with you yeah, and- <laughs> yeah excuse yeah, me Josh speak- can the I the just
1: sl- click thank you
0: <laughs> just move, move them while they're asleep and just get the right angle
1: <laughs> it would have been good
0: Thanks for listening to part one of this amazing interview with Hayden Walden. Now, we've only just scratched the surface. There are two more episodes for you. Please tune in because Hayden has an incredibly important story and he has a super powerful message that you and the rest of the world needs to hear. His life takes a major turn. For the unexpected. And he goes through uh, incredible tragedy and loss and has a huge amount to cope with in his life. And despite all of that darkness, he finds a light, he finds a way through. And he is an inspiration who lives to encourage other people to kind of get up and do something and keep going. So please come back, tune in next time, listen to part two and then part three of this episode. It's one of the longest episodes I've recorded, but it is hugely rewarding. He's incredibly generous with his time. And I think it's an important story that you will love, will make you cry, will break your heart. It will give you inspiration and motivation to move forwards, whatever adversity you may be facing in your own life. So thank you for listening. Tune in next time for part two with Hayden Walden.